Welcome to Animation Cellar. Crunchy conversations about classic cartoons. Let's get normal. I'm Matsy. And it's ya boy, Micah. On Animation Celery, we give each other cartoons to watch, and we meet the following week to review and discuss them. This time, we're looking at the second of two parters. We left last time on cliffhangers to the Bob's Burgers How Bob Saves Slash Destroys the Town duology, and the Transformers The Key to Vector Sigma Epic. But before we get to those thrilling conclusions, what do you want to talk about first, Massey? Okay, so I watched some of Lost in Oz, not as much as I would have liked, um, okay. because I do, I did quite enjoy it, um, but we can still talk about it. Okay, cool. But, but we'll, we'll talk about that, I think, in your segment, probably. Because, Either way. Because, well, okay, fine, we can talk about it now. Um, I, I like it. I thought mm-hmm. that the pilot probably needed another pass over the script. It just seemed like kind of there were some things about it that I was like, eh, this could be tightened up a bit. Um, All right. It's not it's not as bad as uh, the first episode of Disenchantment, but it's it was like, you know, it opens with, uh, you know, Dorothy and she's building some kind of Rubik's machine to wake her up in the morning or something. And then as far as I can yeah. see, that never actually came into her character again. Maybe it does in later episodes. I don't know. It does. It does. Isn't oh. that funny, though? Whenever I see a Rube Goldberg machine. Yeah, that's what I meant. Uh, what do you think? Like, I remember back to the future when the, the dog gets fed at the beginning by the by the machine. Right. Right. But I think I was immediately comparing it to Pee Wee's Big Adventure, which is so yeah. much more grand, you know, with the pancake flipping and everything. And much more uh, iconic music, too. Yes. What else? I thought I thought it was abrupt how West went from being like completely. What's the word I'm looking for? Ambivalent towards door. No, standoffish. Yeah. Standoffish. She was really ambivalent. She's like, fine. My mom told me to meet you. So I meet you. You're not my problem anymore. And then they become out of nowhere. They're just best friends. Hmm. Uh, I thought that transition in their relationship was really weird to the point where she would give up the promise of being a super powerful witch um, just to save Dorothy. I think the like, deal is that she has no friends, though. Well, yeah, I, I guess. But at the same time, like, you know, she was so aloof. Right. And then just, you know, it's not even like anything happened to trigger it. It's just they went to school. And then they went to West house and they were all friendly. I don't Hmm. know. But, but at the same time though, I, I do like the show. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm digging it. It, That becomes a theme though. Like in in other episodes where she vacillates that way, right. To like, I thought we were friends and then, you know, Mm. and then in her heart of heart, she really is Dorothy's friend. Right. Hmm. So, um, so that's cool. Um, do you do you have any more that you would like to say about Lost in Oz? Okay, well, I'm not sure how far you've seen. Um, eh, just go ahead. One of the things I th- think is funny is we see other Munchkins. Uh-huh. So uh, Ojo is the principal Munchkin in the storyline, and he's got a gigantic head. It's kind of a funny take on them, right? 
I um, noticed I th- that in the first episode, like, yeah, <laughs> one of the things in the script that I thought could have used another pass is when West, you know, she he's making fun of her for having some kind of like hippo toy. Right. And and she says, like, oh, shut up, munchkin. And Dorothy's immediate response is, you're a munchkin. And I'm like, how would you leap to that conclusion? Like, if someone calls somebody a name, like, if I, right. you know, if I you was in front was of a, someone, like, it's like, oh, yeah. oh, Micah, you doofus. And someone's like, Micah, you're a doofus? Maybe it was just on her mind the whole time. She was too polite to say something about his huge head. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and and his um, response is, I'm big for my age. He is. Yeah. Um. So... Uh, so yeah, everything's bigger about him, but especially his head as compared to a human, except his overall height. He's still shorter than an adult human. Gosh, I just Um, realized, I just realized how, um, (laughs) how exactly opposite that is from normal Wizard of Oz. Right. Well, you still see other like adult humans and they're taller than him. Right. Right. And you get to see other munchkins like his dad. Mm -hmm. And they're all small. He's just a big boy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So they're all more conventionally small munchkins. I think it's pretty funny. funny. It is funny. Ojo the giant munchkin. <laughs> yeah. The size of a human child. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's, he's bit anyway. Um, uh, we do get to see a bigger villain in the grand scheme of things. Okay. Sort of like uh, uh, Fitz's boss. And oh. I guess I'm not going to give anything away. Okay. Um, it's a witch. Um, and they chose Languideer. Do you remember who she is? No. Okay. This is weird because Languideer in the books is not a witch. In fact, she's not even that big a villain. Um, she's the princess of a kingdom called Ev. And at the beginning of one storyline, she imprisons Dorothy. See, she's, she's vain and a little crazy because her moods switch when she changes her heads. Okay. In... In, uh, I think Return to Oz is the Disney movie. Um, yeah. They conflated her with another villain called Mombi, who actually is a witch. So funny enough. Okay. <laughs> they, they head switched the witch character. And in this case, they witched the head switch character. I, we haven't seen if she can switch heads yet. I think mm. mostly it was just that Languideer is a sexy name, I guess is why they decided to go with it. Okay. Anyway, um, you, you asked about uh, Dorothy's Rube Goldberg machine. Yes, she is good with machines. Um, which in a way is kind of a weird departure for Dorothy's because most Dorothy Gales have nothing special about them at all. Yeah. Like, I think that was a conscious decision of Baum back in the day that he wanted Dorothy to be like an every, every girl American that everyone could identify with. Yeah. Whereas this Dorothy is, uh, good mechanically and good at climbing. Okay. She, she and her, her mother do like adventures, like rock climbing and stuff. So yeah, it's well, uh well, good in, in other versions of Oz, she's largely just a passenger with good intentions. Like, yes. Like in her the Wizard be- of Oz, the movie, she's like, she does nothing. She just wants to go home and she, her biggest contribution to the plot is being kidnapped so that the three actual heroes have a reason to go into the witch's uh, castle. Sure. And then her best, in, hmm? yeah. Well, I said her best skill is being pitiable. Yeah. Mostly. Yeah. And it, and then in that um in that animated one that I gave you the mm. the more recent one, what was it called? Uh, was it just the Wizard of Oz? 
Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz. Yeah. I think. Um, she, you know, she was just a good intentioned crusader with the ability to teleport anywhere through her slippers. Right. That's something I mean, at least. Yeah, it's something at least. Yes. But anyway, yeah, this one's got real abilities. Um, hmm. Good. Now, it's called Lost in Oz, but up till episode nine, everything's still been Emerald City. So I wouldn't say they're lost exactly. Um, well, she's not home. Yeah, yeah. And I think the second season has more kind of traversing land sort of stuff in it. Hmm. Um, Is there ever a wizard? Uh, not yet. Hmm. Um, we do get to meet the Scarecrow by this point, though. I wondered about him. Yeah, and it's pretty cool what they've done with him. And and good design. I don't know what it is, but the Scarecrow from Wizard of Oz generally has a good design in various interpretations. <laughs> oh, those feet in the <laughs> yes. tails from the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> Good for different reasons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm starting to think that I actually really like the Scarecrow. Sure. I think I'll miss him most of all. Oh, oh, oh. Well, I see what you did. Um, anyway, I guess that's what I have to say about that until we, we watch more episodes together. But OK, because I've got another banger that I need to talk about. Oh, oh. my gosh. Okay. <laughs> I was looking for something totally different and I saw this title and I was like, ooh, I should check this out. And then I did. And it was. Mm, <laughs> it was so bad that the title. Oh, no, the title. The title was fine. Okay. The title is Battletoads. Oh, is in based on the, the, the cartoon based on the video game? Yes. <laughs> That's most famous for one GIF. Oh, really? Well, yeah, yeah. It's like a a femdom GIF with the, oh. um, what, what's her name? The evil princess holding the good princess, and the good the, princess is kicking her legs, and I think you can see under her dress and stuff. And yeah, the dark anyway. queen. The dark queen. Oh, scandal. Yeah. Okay. So I saw this and I'm not going to say that I couldn't look away because I looked away many times over this week <laughs> to watch this half hour cartoon. Um, but wow, it has been a while since I have seen a cartoon that is this incompetent. It's pretty crap. The basic premise is pretty crap. Like the games are oh. debatably interesting. Have you seen the cartoon? I have seen the first episode. Yes. Well, there is only one episode. So I was going to ask. Yeah, yeah it was a pilot that was never picked up because every uh. it, the voice acting is bad. The art is bad. The animation is bad. The writing mm. is bad. The best thing I can say about it is that by, by being irredeemable garbage, it's at least faithful to its source material. Have you seen the remake of the, the modern Battletoads game? I know that it exists. Uh, I don't like Battletoads, so I haven't really investigated it much. It looks really funny. I've watched a little bit of playthrough on it. And, <laughs> you know, I just realized I have a, a game pass. I could probably yeah. play that now if I wanted to. Oh, well, um, it stays faithful to the idea that Battletoads is a million different game modes. Yeah. So it's a little like WarioWare. 
Hmm. I mean, not in the duration, but just in the wackiness of the stuff you do. Like there's one bit where you're like at an office job and you're <laughs> doing the controls to keep up with it. That was one of the gimmicks of the NES game was that every level had a different theme to it. Well, like, so, like I said, debatably fine, except that the uh, the damn jump where you're, where you're riding the uh, the scooter that has to jump over the walls is so mm -hmm. tough. Well, I think there's a lot of levels like that. Like there, there's a, I played it with cheats once. Oh no, it wasn't cheats. I played it on an emulator and used st save states. Save a states. Lot. Okay. Um, and there's this level where you're swimming through pipes and yeah. there's like just blind jumps with spikes at the bottom. And if you don't know that you have to hold right, it's not like a Mega Man where you can see it lining the side of the column. And so you kind of know where to go. It's like, you're just okay. falling and it's like, Hey, there's some on the left side. Better push right real fast because you have a second. Um, and that kind of like, it's not just difficulty, it's memorization. It's like you have to well, have played and died this before and know. There you go. If it's if it's like the, that early jump section, then uh, even though you can memorize it, the stress and the endurance factor of having to make so many of them. Yeah. Yeah, it's not fun. Yeah, that game sucks. Anyway, the cartoon yeah. Um, boy. So the idea of this cartoon is that there's a princess of the galaxies, I guess, Princess Angelica, and most mm. of the universe and the galaxies have been conquered by the Dark Queen and Angelica is like. Um, I don't know, she, she, maybe she's the rightful ruler or whatever, but she has Professor T Bird, who is a bird, and uh, they go to some planet and they get the genetic essence of the battle toads who were the galaxy's defenders long ago. And then they go to earth and they find three losers. Uh, hey. They profess to be nerds, but only one of them is really a nerd, but they're all unpopular and bad at what they do. Uh, and they find these guys and spray them with the stuff. So they have the ability to turn into the battle toads by giving their patented cry. Let's get warty. <laughs> although before <laughs> before they do that the first thing they do is turn back into humans which they do with the battle cry let's get normal okay. which is yeah which is where i got that from um whew. and yeah they have the ability the one of the things in the video game is that after you do a certain number of punches you'll your body part, like your hand will turn into an anvil or something like all cartoon. Sure. And they have the ability to do that in the cartoon where they can just turn their their hands into a saw blade to cut through the floor or, you know, a pair of symbols to smash some guy. Yeah, why not? Uh, yeah, Redeeming I guess. Them, I guess. Yes. Yes. Um, you know, the thing that struck me about this mm. uh, when it opened up, you know, the title screen. Or the, you know, it has its opening credits. And then there's the screen that shows the title of the episode, which is Battletoads. And the writer, David Wise. And I went, boy, that name sounds really familiar. I'm sure I've seen something by him really recently. I mm -hmm. was thinking maybe Dungeons and Dragons. Okay. Turns out, no, it's even more recent than that. David Wise wrote a few episodes of the Transformers, including... The key to Vector Sigma, parts <laughs> one and two. <laughs> so it instant wow. drove you to it. Wow. He fell on hard times in 1992, apparently. 
Oh, hard times, you say. He's probably cranking these things out like five a week or something. <laughs> anyway, boy, this Battletoads cartoon, it's on YouTube. Uh, readily right. available. And it's it's so bad. Mm-hmm. They guessed it in a Mortal Kombat game, you know. I do. Uh, no, yeah, yeah. No, not. Oh, Was Killer it? Instinct. Killer, Killer Instinct. Instinct. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Killer Instinct. The current Killer Instinct has the Battletoads in it. Although, as you're describing, hmm? as you're describing how they go like, you know, uh, anvil fisted and stuff like that. Yeah. I think they would actually fit better as guest characters in a Darkstalkers game. <laughs> well, yeah, but they're owned by Microsoft and well, it's actually, it's the same company. It's Rare. Uh, Rare made Killer Instinct and Battletoads. And yeah, they're so both owned sense. by Microsoft. So that's that's where the ownership yeah. is. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, Darkstalkers is is that Capcom? Yes, I think it's Capcom. And then, you know, Mortal, Mortal Kombat. Kombat's their natural enemy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, you well, said Killer Instinct. Who owns I don't know, Mortal Killer Instinct Kombat nowadays? It's Warner Brothers, oh. I think. Yeah, yeah, you're right, right. You know what they should have is a mm. Cheetah Man <laughs> cartoon. <laughs> just <laughs> once again, just a pilot, just a single one, right? Gosh, I wonder who owns Cheetah Man. <laughs> Someone real lucky, I tells you. Well, that's all I have for this week. So while you start talking, I'm going to look up Cheetah Men real quick and see if I can figure out the lineage of it. So go ahead. Okay. Um, so my coworker made a recommendation to me. This is not the same coworker that I've mentioned several times who always pushes 70s cartoons at me. Um, he recommended that I watch The Legend of Vox Machina. You know what that is? It sounds really familiar, but I can't think of where it is. A Vox or, Machina is the adventuring party on Critical Role. The, uh, yeah, the the video series of voice actors playing Dungeons and Dragons under Dungeon Master Matt Mercer. Right. Um, I, I dismissed Critical Role so fast that I don't even really remember that much about it. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what they did. At the time, I was looking... Um, I quite enjoyed the early Penny Arcade D&D podcasts. Yeah, I did too. Yeah. Um, so I kind of wanted something like that. And I can never find one that quite scratches the right itch for me. Like, I want the game to be faithful and gamey. Mm-hmm. And it would still be nice if they were funny. And I actually figured out another component to this is that them just like goofing around like you know, like the D&D games that I, or role-playing games in general that I play in, right? That we're just kind of cutting up and act, acting right. goofy, right? Yeah. Um, and nothing quite fits there, right? Like, um, I'll get hang-ups on, uh, was it like Harmon Quest or whatever it was, where um, mm-hmm. uh, where the rules just like go out the window, right? Yeah, yeah. They're just, they're just put on a show, right? So the GMs just smoothing over everything. Um and I don't, even, like I said, I don't even remember where Critical Role falls in that, but I'm pretty, I'm assuming kind of like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's immensely popular, but like I said, it just left very little impression on me. I dismissed it, but I wanted to look at this cartoon. And th- I thought um, I'll do it with fresh eyes, right? I will, I'll have um, uh, an open mind okay. watching this thing. So it, it is just like, you know, taking their adventures and animating them. And, you know, I'd over... <laughs> One episode, I don't like it much. Um, Last week, I said about Bob's Burgers that the humor in there 
was good enough for when you and your friends are riffing. Yeah. But really, you know, that's not good enough to end up in a cartoon script. I feel the same thing for here. This is good enough for the game table, but everybody thinks like that their great role-playing adventure should be made into a book or cartoon or comic book or something like that. And I think, you know, maybe not. <laughs> yeah. Um, like nothing in it is that inspiring to me. The characters are all sort of lame, right? Mm -hmm. In the same way that you, if you could imagine, like, okay, there's, there's a barbarian who's big, strong, stupid, and says the F word a lot. Oh. Um, yeah. There's a, uh, I think he's a gnome bard who's really vulgar and likes to screw around. Mm. Um, there's a brother and sister pair of edgelords. Um, anyway, there's a whole bunch Man, of these. Why that... can't people make interesting D&D characters? Like <laughs> one of my, you know what? One of the, this is a weird thing, but you know what? One of the most, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Formative D&D things that I ever heard was you talking about the concept of an urban barbarian. Oh yeah. <laughs> and my, I played him. Yeah, the the guy that's just like a street tough that I was thinking like there, there was his this is uh fifth edition one mm -hmm. I think they're talking about where um he he like I said he, he he's half work who just gets into trouble a lot and I was thinking like in the same lines that boxing coaches will take uh troubled kids and give them some purpose through boxing his benefactor was a priest who kind of you know shaped him you know and gave him military service and the like yeah Anyway, you're sorry. But I, but I like, no, no, no. I like the idea of like unusual concepts. In, like I have a list of, I've made a class, a, a character in all 13 current D&D classes. Well, I think okay. there might be more on the websites or whatever, but you know, the 12 in the books plus the artificer from Eberron. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to make an interesting version of each one. One where I'd be like, this is a new take on this character that I would be like happy to play. Uh, I did get to play one, which I believe you saw, which was the barbarian who is a pirate. Yeah. Renown. That was one of my favorite yep. D and D characters. I love renown. Yeah. Yeah. So, you got to howl and stuff. Yeah. 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 Why, why can't people, you know, why is it like, Oh, I'm going to make this a uh, cleric and he's going to be in armor and he's going to have a mace and He's oh, man. just going to be a priest of this. Like the cleric that I created is a. Uh, maybe I'll play this character one day, but uh, it's a eunuch who identifies <laughs> as female mm -hmm. uh, and is considered to be an earthly avatar of the goddess of fate. And so mm -hmm. the idea is that her actions in the world are considered to be directing fate in the direction that Istus, the goddess of fate, uh, wants. Okay. And I think Man. I gave her like a javelin or something for her weapon. Hey, sure. Yeah, that's cool. Actually, if you want to talk about mechanically fifth edition clerics, it's spirit guardians all day, all night. <laughs> I I played one cleric that had it and I played a divine uh, soul sorcerer who had it and I was already sick of it. <laughs> <laughs> even even being the person who was doing it. I mean, there's there's strength in archetypes. Yeah, it's just it's just that I didn't find them that charming and not 
anywhere. Like on the design level, they're kind of boring too. Like, um, like I was saying about people who want to convert their games into, into other media, yeah. um, their, their game experience, there's sort of a standalone complex, you know, where all these different people making their comics and whatever, they've kind of made the same characters. They kind of look the same. They have the same sense of humor. You know what I mean? Yeah. And Vox Machina is just like right down the middle on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt the world was very underdesigned too. I've only watched one episode. I'm not going to be watching more probably, but, um, you know, <laughs> looking at that, I, I, it was similar to, I had to look it up to make sure it wasn't the same as, uh, uh, Masters of the Universe, uh, Revelations. Okay. Cause I got kind of the same vibe, you know, where it's all, it's, it's, it's all digital backgrounds that are very colorful, but you know, you know, uh, there's some trees on this mountain, blah, 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 blah. There's like no character to it. Right. Right. Um, I, we recently reviewed the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon and I'm more interested to see what's around the corner in that weird world <laughs> so far than Vox Machina. Part of me questions if I'm spoiled for entertainment in this modern age. Like if I saw this in the nineties, I probably would have been thrilled. You know, it's like, this is pretty well animated and it's full of nudity and swearing and dismemberment. Yeah, yeah. But then I think like when I was young, I was watching uh, The Slayers and I think The Slayers is better than this, but hmm. Anyway, I'm going to give it a thumbs down. That Legend of Vox Machina. Didn't like it. Okay. Um, uh, I'll just um, cut in real quick here. Mm-hmm. Um, my research tells me that uh, Action 52, the game that the Cheetahmen <laughs> is from. Yeah. As far as I can tell, it may be owned by a company called Farsight Studios. And I'm on their website right now. It shows... That the logos for the consoles they develop for are Steam, the PlayStation hmm. 4, Xbox One, Nintendo Switch, Android, iOS, Kindle Fire, and Oculus. And okay. the most recent news post is the exciting release of PBA Pro Bowling 2021 <laughs> for the Nintendo Switch, PS4, Xbox One, and Steam back in December of 2020 which, if I'm not mistaken, would have been shortly after the PS5 and Xbox Series X were released. I'm not even sure. I was thinking, do they have the rights to the Cheetahman music? But I I don't even think the original game had the proper rights to it. I think they just ripped it off. I think they also, oh, I'm just looking now, I think they also, they do Brunswick Pro Billiards. And I think they also <laughs> do, I think they also do pinball games because as I'm scrolling, it has a pinball table in the background. And yeah. if I scroll down far enough, you know, it, it does some like HTML5 stuff where like the different bars mm-hmm. as they scroll will have a different background. Okay. And based on this artwork, I'm thinking this is probably the backboard artwork for a Ghostbusters pinball game. Oh. Because I see Sigourney Weaver in a disheveled red dress and... <laughs> Rick Moranis with his shirt buttoned the wrong way. And I see the Ghostbusters here and Slimer at the bottom. The State Puff mm. Marshmallow Man is in the background. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, um, they might be the ones to talk to if we want to see the Cheetah Men come back. Well, Farsight, get the rights to that music and then make the Cheetah Men game and print money. 
It'll probably be a Cheetahman pinball game. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Fine. Yeah. <laughs> Give us more Cheetahman. You know what they should even just do is license T-shirts and stuff. Yeah. No, you're right. <laughs> oh, they they develop games for Oculus, like the <laughs> the Cheetahman. Oh yeah. <laughs> virtual reality experience. Yes, you can have the experience of double jumping up through the ceiling and coming out the floor. <laughs> boop, 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 doo, 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 doo. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's that's yeah. our Cheetahman update. Carry on. <laughs> okay. Um, boy, I probably should have... I, I buried the lead here. I My completion tour of My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic, is done. It's complete. Yes, I watched the climax, the confrontation between um, T-Rick... Uh, Chrysalis and Cozy Glow versus uh, uh, our our heroes, the ponies. Now there was, they they were kind of like sowing um, distrust from between the types of ponies, mm-hmm. but they were only doing it in this two parter. Something they really should have seeded throughout the series. The, you know? the uh, discord, no pun intended, between Earth ponies yes. and Pegasus and uh, magic uh, unicorns. Yes, yes. They should have had it in there as just like a little thing, you know, like well, when they yeah, yeah. did. Not really. Um, do you remember Hearth Swarming Eve? Ah, yes, yes, yes. They OK. They remember it, too. OK. Um, But I mean, in terms of like. Chrysalis using her shape changing and uh, Cozy Glow using her manipulation. Mm-hmm. They, they were out like trying to divide the ponies while T-Rex researched the magical bell. Okay. Um, so like I said, this should have happened all the way through season nine. Like it should have been little things where, you know, Big Mac marries Sugar Bell and somebody should have had like an off color remark about a earth pony marrying a peg, marrying a uh, unicorn. You know, that kind of thing should have been seeded throughout there where, you know, whoever, like, you know, Pinkie Pie might say, that's not a nice thing to say, but yeah, then yeah. just moved on from there, you know. Um, but anyway, that's that's how they they divide and then conquer. Um, now, I made predictions about this. One of them was r- totally wrong and a wrong in the way that I've complained about My Little Pony where they seem to build in a direction and then don't follow through on it. Okay. But one of my goofiest predictions is half right, which I cannot believe. Huh. Um, anyway, I guess I, I won't spoil those exactly. But if, if you've seen it, you, you maybe you know what I'm talking about. Um, the end confrontation is in some ways it lacks the grandeur of prior climaxes. Mm-hmm. Um, like especially how it's staged and like camera angles and such are very more conventional My Little Pony kind of um, a f- kind of fair. Mm-hmm. But they're doing it with so many characters and so much bedlam going on and everybody using their skills and stuff that I think it evens out, you know? Um, now, uh, 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 in the end, you, know, you remember that this was a reunion of all, of all the not converted villains and my little pony to be a team right right and the first one was somber that was like no way i can do this on my own and after just being imprisoned twilight not just once but twice shoots to kill him and vaporizes him right yeah 
kind of similarly, there are villains in this that get essentially damned <laughs> at the end, which hmm. I thought like, whoa, okay. Um, however, their fates before were not great either, like to be imprisoned in a cave, but not only imprisoned in a cave, but in a cage that's practically like their factory farm animal, you know? <laughs> so I guess that's pretty bad if you just were going to like throw Tyrick in a cage for hundreds of years. Um, yeah. But, but uh, inversely, there's a villain who gets off so scot-free that I can't believe it. And even the plot worked in a way in which they were diminished, where it could have been like, well, you're no threat anymore, so this is how it should be, right? Yeah. Nope, just, just get soft, scot-free. I, I can't fathom it. Anyway. <laughs> but but overall, pretty fun. It's got it's got both some conventional stuff, like the the... As you might remember from the beginning of the season, the elements of harmony are destroyed. Right. So ponies have to contribute in within themselves, right? What they can do. Mm. And not just the main six. Like I said, this is like a big battle of a lot of characters, huh. including some that really pay off, right? Um, a ponyville-wide oh. Care Bear stare. Well, the thing is, like I said, they're being conventional, right? Like Applejack lassoes something, you know, <laughs> and Rarity uses a little telekinesis by surprise and, you know. Stuff like that, you know. Uh -huh. It also is paired with some Sailor Moonish Deus Ex Machina as well. <laughs> but eh. now, one of the things I kind of like is uh, some of the things that aren't symmetrical, you know, to telling the story. And the the thing that I especially liked was Chrysalis has a one on one fight with Starlight Glimmer. That was pretty neat. Um, yeah, she Chrysalis attacks the school and Starlight teleports them both to some frozen waste so they can't hurt anyone. Hmm. And they just duke it out. Pretty neat, I think. Yeah, good. Yeah. Okay, so that was a two-parter that's followed by the final episode where there is a time skip. And you are not prepared for the way some characters look at the time skip. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so... Uh, I guess I'm not giving away too much. Uh, <laughs> I say that Twilight's still around. And Twilight, uh, um, she has her own pupil. And I guess they all follow the same convention. This one's Luster Dawn. Um, yeah, okay. Who doesn't value friendship. And so she tells a story about how she's maintained her friendships, even though she has had to move to Canterlot for her rule. Hmm. <laughs> she just demands that her friends send her letters every day. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, some of this is flashback to the present day, um, present day ponies, that is. Uh, and then in the end, she was like, OK, they reveal the uh, the future ponies. Right. So all the main six. Well, in fact, any pony, it was just an adult back in the day has like a wrinkle under their eye. OK, but uh, but other big design changes like their manes are totally different. Hmm. Um and well, I think uh, the most glamorous Fluttershy gets like this. Her, she really grew her mane out and it's kind of like swooped in a loop and all that. And Pinkie Pie's <laughs> grown hers out too. And I can't tell whether it's by design or accident that it's just full of stuff. Um, <laughs> okay. But here's the payoff in this final episode is shipping, shipping, shipping. They give you relationships galore. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh. 
Yeah, like fan servicey, you know, like, here you go, here, th this is a couple, and this is a couple too. And afterwards, I looked it up, and there are people who don't agree with some of them, <laughs> especially from the premise that there's so little romance in the show that few of them feel earned, you know? Okay, yeah. And they're not wrong. And some of them I disagree with on, on some principle, but uh, I'll give away one. Uh, one who doesn't. Uh, or at least they don't show it. Rarity, I guess, is still a spinster. Okay. What I figure is that while she was the most romance crazy, I guess, of the main six in the show, it was always for po for like stallions of status, you know? Mm. And at this point, as a nine-time saver of Equestria, or ten-time, I guess you count the movies, and... um decades of being at the top of the fashion world no stallion measures up to where she needs him right so or she's just carrying a torch for spike oh god anyway they then with the musical numbers you might imagine yeah. and uh by the end of it i was pretty genuinely emotional hmm. because this show for uh you said ambivalence earlier for all my ambivalence to it um Nine years is a long time, and it gave us a show that at least, like, visually, is the best looking of that style of show. Wouldn't you agree? Yes, I would. Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty neat. <laughs> I'll tell you, there's a bit in the song where each of the main six is jumping over a background that, like, uh, that, not wipes, but changes to show all the various characters they've been they've interacted with in their episodes hmm. and I did rewatch it to uh, get some glee that Aloysius wasn't anywhere in uh, Twilight's record. <laughs> he is. I, saw, I found him. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> Hiding like Loki. But, yeah. <laughs> anyway, it's a, a, it's a good ending. Good. The last season is overall pretty good too. So nice finish for the show. Nice. About I don't know if I'm going to fill on all my Equestria girls gaps, but oh yeah. yeah. Just thinking about endings that make you genuinely emotional. I'm yeah. I'm thinking about Adventure Time. Sure. Well, same thing, right? I like short series, but with those long ones, you develop yeah. a relationship with them. Well, the way that I'm going to assume that you haven't seen the last episode of Adventure Time. I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, you haven't seen most episodes of Adventure Time, I think. More uh, than I think, though. Yeah. Um. It's, I thought the, the last episode was kind of underwhelming, actually, um, mm -hmm. but it ends, the very, very end of it is pretty much perfect. Um, okay. It's the, you know, the closing credit song, Adventure Time, Come Along With Me? Yeah. Uh, well, that's the title of the episode. And okay. it's, it ends with the full version of that song, and it just goes showing little snippets of what happens to every character that has ever been in the show. Oh, yeah. Um, and then, of course, there's also the Distant Lands special um, Together Again, which shows the definitive end of the Finn and Jake story, um, hmm. which also kind of got me to see them like I've, I've mentioned it before, and it's not a big spoiler because it's the one of the first things that happens in that episode is 
the, it, that episode has a title screen that pops up every now and then and changes as the status changes. Um, so the first huh. title screen that pops up is Finn and Jake are dead. So that's mm. the premise of that episode is that it's Finn in the dead world uh, looking for Jake, who has died previously. And it ends with the dead souls of Finn and Jake moving on to their next phase of existence. Huh. That's a pretty definitive end of Finn and Jake. Uh, them being reincarnated. So does uh, hmm? does does well, I guess it's a spoiler. I don't know. Does does Finn die as an adolescent? No. Oh, okay. that's actually not even a spoiler, because in the previous distant lands, uh, which mm. is called Obsidian, uh, mm. right at the very end, adult Finn shows up. Oh, OK. He's they've he's living in a, an RV, essentially. With yeah. um with Jake's granddaughter Bronwyn and he has a big <laughs> it's actually comedic in how big it is it's this huge tattoo of Jake that covers his entire chest <laughs> all right yeah so he is previous it's actually a really funny moment cuz he's cuz um uh princess bubblegum and marceline had i think somebody like Pe peppermint butler or somebody had gone for help um, and so then once they've resolved everything at the very end, Finn shows up and he gets out of his RV and he's he was clearly just in the shower because he's wearing a towel. Yeah. And he's like, hey, what's up, PB? Need a hand? And she's like, no, I got it. And then you see the towel blow away. And one mm -hmm. of the NPCs goes, that man's towel just blew off. And Princess Bubblegum stares for a second and goes, eh. And that's the end of that episode. It's a brilliant okay. episode. Or a brilliant ending. It's a brilliant episode, too. I think it's the best one of the distant lands, but it's that that's just great just to see, you know, now that they've established her lesbian relationship with Marceline to have Finn get naked in front of her. And she's just like, eh, <laughs> I'm a lesbian, but I can appreciate beautiful things. Yeah. I can appreciate a good penis. But but also it's pretty clear that Finn has moved on from her as well. That yeah, yeah. that happens way before. But uh, anyway, sure, sure. Let's uh, let's let's do something else. How about some some endings that don't have the gravitas or emotional heft, I suppose. Yeah. OK, <laughs> um, I got to watch part two, the key to Vector Sigma part two. So, yeah, brief recap for those of you who didn't listen to last week's episode. Uh, yeah. Uh, the heroic Autobots thwarted the evil Decepticons by being cars one too many times. And so Megaton, <laughs> Megatron decided we need our own cars. So Rumble stole some cars and they uh, uh, Megatron renovated them to give them the ability to transform and then went to Cybertron to find the supercomputer Vector Sigma, which was the creator of Cybertron and the Transformers, who would give them life and personalities. The Autobots followed. And as the Decepticons escaped back to Earth with the Stunticons, and started ruining the Autobots' good names, we left off with the the Autobots and their pal Vector Sigma. No, Alpha Trion. I, Alpha told, Trion. I told you last week I was going to get them mixed up. Well, they're going to solve that problem for you real fast. Or make it Mixing worse. them up. <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, they were looking at some old shuttlecraft and thinking, hmm, would it be possible to turn these into Earth-style aircraft? 
So that's where we left off. Now, skipping into the, I guess, let's call it the present day of this episode. They, the Autobots have successfully managed to turn these shuttlecraft into human-style airplanes. The problem, and now you mentioned last time, um, finding it amusing that Megatron had just left the key to Vector Sigma in Vector Sigma. Well, it turns... Only in animation errors. Well, yeah, <laughs> it turns out he didn't. Because they yeah. mentioned, how are we going to do anything with these airplanes because Megatron took the key to Vector Sigma with him. Well, it turns out that as one of the first Transformers, Alpha Trion has like a, I don't know, an energy system that's linked to Vector Sigma. He can turn yeah, he's got on, the same. He can yeah. turn on Vector Sigma at the um, at the cost of his own sentience or his own um, existence, really. So he does. Individuality, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, his life, because his body is just ruined. Well, he becomes like a former avatar, I was thinking, as the parallel. Yeah, I guess that's true. Anyway, uh, Optimus Prime does pretty much the same thing that Megatron did, where he tells Vector Sigma to give these aircraft life and personalities and make them good Autobots. And much like before, the moral-less Vector Sigma goes, okay. But hmm. unknownst to the Autobots, Galvatron... No, I did it again! God... Oh my god. Jeez... Shockwave. Okay. Shockwave. Yeah. He looks kind of like Galvatron in my defense. Well, they're, they're, they're colors. Yeah, they're purple. Sort of they're purple cannons. Okay. Shockwave is spying. Shockwave being the Decepticon who has stayed behind on Cybertron. And he sees what's up. He sees that the Autobots have created some airplane transformers. He also hears... That Alpha Trion has now merged with Vector Sigma, and he gives a warning that on Earth, the key to Vector Sigma is going to have weird powers that the they have to beware of. On Earth, <laughs> it's kind of funny. All the Decepticons, including the Stunticons, are flying. So the entire point You're is right. like flying is for losers. We need cars. And then as soon as they get the cars, they start flying. Right. <laughs> um, they get the communique from Shockwave that the key to Vector Sigma does something cool on Earth. <laughs> so Megatron figures we got to find out what this is. Back on Cybertron, the th there's a funny sequence here. It, it actually happened a little earlier where the aerial bots introduce themselves and... <laughs> There's a there's kind of a joke that I've seen where sometimes um, yeah. you can tell when an artist isn't comfortable drawing hands or feet when he finds ways to hide them. Um, OK, a good example of this is the artist who does the comic strip uh, Pearls Before Swine, where okay. he will almost always find a way to put a fence or a bush covering a human character's lower body. Sure. Or infamous Rob Liefeld always putting oh, a sure. curved horizon. Oh, yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah. There's a scene where one of the aerial bots, um, by the way, Optimus Prime asks Vector Sigma to imbue all six of them with life, but there's only five. Whoops. Um, but also there's a scene where one of them is introducing himself and he's completely hidden by Optimus Prime's gigantic <laughs> head. Yeah, poor Fireflight. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, that was that's a funny thing that happened before. But now what has to happen is that the aerial bots... Uh, 
fly and fight off. Because remember, there's these Centurion drones who apparently have become a lot more competent and a lot more widespread because they are everywhere mm. and have guns now. Uh, the aerial bots help the Autobots fly away and board onto Omega Supreme, who remember his power is to turn into a rocket launch playset. Apparently, the rocket part can transport the playset part with it. Sure. They fly back along to with Optimus Prime's trailer. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, while they fly back to Earth, Optimus Prime basically explains the premise of Transformers to the aerial bots and tells them that oh they need God. to defend uh, the Earth from the evil forces of the Decepticons. When they land on Earth, Omega Supreme warns them that he's been damaged and is going to explode. And he does. So now the Autobots are trying to figure out how to put together their giant. Remember, he's the only one who can fight off the Combiner Devastator. But he's mm. in rough shape. His body is destroyed. His brain is basically on life support. But Ratchet worries that they won't be able to put his body back together before the brain dry, uh, dies. So while he's working on that, the Autobots head to the military base where the super fuel is and are attacked by the guards. Because remember, the Stunticons ruined the Autobots' good name by being evil, destructive cars. There's a brief shootout where the army explains that uh, they are not into the Autobots. And the aerial bots, <laughs> uh, notably yeah. Slingshot, who I could have sworn was voiced by Rob Paulson, but his name is okay. not in the credits. Huh. Um, he is starting to question whether they should really put any effort into defending these humans if the humans hate them. And then the Stunticons show up and there's a battle. The Earthbound, the Earthbound uh, Autobots are no match for the also Earthbound Stunticons. Though the Stunticons, remember, have force fields and anti-gravity stuff, so they are more uh, impressive drivers than the Autobots. So it's up to the aerial bots to do their part and fight off these cars, basically. In the you know what's weird? Hmm? That, the, that they fight the same way as the Stunticons. Collisions. Which I think would not favor you if you were flying. But yeah. for the most part, it's just them ramming each other. Yeah. By the way, it is Rob Paulson. Really? Huh. Yep. I mean, that makes sense because it sure sounds like him. It's just his mm. his voice is not in the credits. Hmm. Oh, well. A little young up-and-comer making his way. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, during this fight, it comes up that one of the aerial bots, Silverbolt, who can turn into a supersonic jet, turns out he doesn't like flying high. He's afraid of heights, which uh, the jerk slingshot gets on his case for. Now, hmm. back at uh, whatever base the Decepticons have set up to figure out this key to Vector Sigma, they find out that the Stunticons have attacked, which was not part of Megatron's plan, and he recalls the Stunticons. So the fight ends with the Stunticons retreating. Back at uh, the volcano, the home of the Autobots, they're still watching Ratchet. And what is the name of the human here? Uh, uh, Spark plug. Is that it? Yeah. Huh. That I have no memory of that. I remember Chip and I remember Spike, but I don't remember Sparkplug. But anyway, Sparkplug, who's a construction man, is helping Ratchet hmm. put uh, Omega Supreme back together. 
the aerial bots, mostly slingshot, kind of goes, uh, let's look around. And Optimus stops Silverbolt to see what happened. Turns out Silverbolt was just a simple courier shuttle back on Cybertron, and he's afraid of heights. So to help him get over his fears, Optimus makes Silverbolt the leader of the aerial bots. It's kind of weird, right? It's like animism. That they remember things before they were sentient objects. I was thinking objects. that too. Yeah, yeah. Maybe there just are no sentient objects on Cybertron. Or non-sentient, you mean, eh? No, I mean... Well, I mean, there are no sentient... Maybe there are no... Oh, no, yeah, you're right. Yeah, non-sentient. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Or like, yeah, or like Shintoism is real or something, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, brief flash just to show that, show that the Decepticons are making no progress in figuring out what the key does. Back at the volcano, the aerial bots are watching Earth TV and they decide these humans are dumb. <laughs> uh, what's his name? Slingshot is like, you know what? I'm getting tired of this. This is why do we have to defend these stupid things? So there is dissension between the aerial bots and the uh, rest of the trend, uh, the Autobots. Now, back at Decepticon land, <laughs> <laughs> Soundwave trips on a tree branch and drops Oops. the key and where the key lands turns into metal. Hey, wait a minute. Megatron figures out that on Earth, the key works opposite the way that Vector Sigma does. Vector Sigma can grant a, a, a immobile matter life. But here on Earth, it drains the life energy from matter and turns it into metal. And so he starts just shooting everything and turning it into metal and figures okay, this is great. We're going to make a new Cybertron. The Autobots, who subscribe to One Ring, see what's going on on mm. their computer. And they determine that <laughs> the, uh, the, the Decepticons are in Tacoma, Seattle. Not, not SeaTac. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, the Autobots decide to go by car, which is pretty much their only form of transportation, now, that volcano, I don't remember the name of that mountain. Yeah. It's in Oregon. So not that far. Oh, okay. I did wonder where it was. Yeah. Uh, by the way, also, that uh, military guy from earlier said that uh, those Autobot, those cars busted up their base a few hours ago. Does it take Omega Supreme a few hours to fly from Cybertron? Hmm. Yeah. Now, in a prior episode... There was like a giant space bridge that brought Cybertron closer to Earth to the extent that it was causing uh, climate and tidal problems on Earth. Okay. But then it was shunted further away. But my impression always was that it stayed relatively close. So I think Cybertron is in our solar system. Still pretty quick. Yeah, true. I mean, you can get to the moon in a few hours, depending on the technology, like, I guess. Yeah, they wouldn't even serve a meal on a flight that long <laughs> going there. But, but yeah, so... You know, yeah, going going to Seattle is probably not that long for not true Transformers. Yeah. Anyway, they get there, and a fight ensues. Oh, but also there's a little clip, a little scene of the aerial bots, who are still hmm. like, I am not into this. And Silverbolt says, Well, okay, why don't we just take over then? Let's go back to the volcano and uh, conquer the place. And the aerial bots figure this is okay. Mm -hmm. Back in Seattle or Tacoma or both, the Autobots and the Stunticons get into a fight. 
the aerial bots back at the volcano see what's going on. And Slingshot uses this as his sort of proof, like, look, the, these Autobots are incompetent. They can't even fight other cars. What are we doing? <laughs> and Silverbolt says, well, hang on, let me show you something. And they go over and they see where Ratchet and Sparkplug are fixing up Omega Supreme. But Ratchet needs to recharge. And so Sparkplug takes over. The aerial bots, again, particularly Slingshot, are kind of amazed at the the Earthling, the Fleshling's ability to keep working, even when a robot has run out of energy. Because it turns out that the humans, I guess, are driven by their desire to help the Autobots or some such. And realizing mm. this, the aerial bots kind of change their tune, or at least Slingshot, who is kind of the <laughs> serves as the, the biggest jerk. one brain of all the rest of them. They change their tune and they decide, OK, let's go help the Autobots. And so they fly to Seattle. I've been in that airport. Hmm. It's all right. Sure, but it's in danger. Is it? Oh, well, it is now. Yes. Well, I mean, the, Seattle could be turned into even more metal than it already is. Yeah, really? Um, boy, the Portland airport would suck. It has wood floors. Um, yeah. Anyway, there's a fight. The aerial bots show up and they fight the Stunticons again, as you said, largely by ramming. But there are some guns as well. Um, mm -hmm. But and here's the big one. Literally, hmm. it turns out that the Stunticons were built with a surprise. They combine into the awesome super robot Menasaur. How could Optimus, who was pretty good at reading Megatron steps one step ahead. How could he have foreseen this? Well, it turns out he did because the aerial bots can also combine into uh, Superion. Superion. I, I knew it was something like that. I forgot his name for a second there. That's weird. I like that. <laughs> so Menasaur is like growling and acting like a <laughs> yeah. like a maniac. But I like that that Superion also speaks like a hooligan. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Says something like, just try it. Or yeah, yeah. Like anyway, there's a big fight between the two giant robots. Um, it turns out that <laughs> Superion is inferior to Menasaur, but... <laughs> you mean Inferion. Yeah. yeah. But it doesn't matter because Omega Supreme is fixed. He shows up and the two big robots are enough to thwart Menasaur enough that Megatron calls for him to disengage into his component parts and the Decepticons retreat. Oh, but there's a problem. Megatron still has the key to Vector Sigma. And so Silverbolt oh, no. goes after him. Silverbolt, of course, is the one who's afraid of heights. But he overcomes his fear to ram Megatron. And then he... His aim with his nose cone gun is not good enough to shoot the key out of the sky as it falls. So he has to transform back into his normal form to blast it. And he is ready to face his impending death by crashing into the earth until he is rescued by Slingshot. And then, according to the animation here, with the key destroyed, all of the verdant trees and rocks turn into metal. That is a hmm. heck of an animation error for the hmm. effect that they were trying to stop be yeah. <laughs> ex expedited. Right. Anyway, 
the aerial bots decide to fly back home, but if it's all the same to them, Silverbolt would rather walk. <laughs> and that's the end. Honestly, for that key for that key to have that power backs up. One thing I like, especially from the Transformers the movie, yeah, is how much of the cosmos is full of metal planets and inorganic life. Mm-hmm. That there's this weird force that can do that. Kind of backs that up, and I like that. Yeah. I have to say that I liked the first episode more than this second one. Uh, David Wise is already on the decline. <laughs> He's a trajectory toward battle toes. <laughs> <laughs> this is where his um, slide started. Well, it's always easier to set up than it is to finish. Yeah, true. Um, and the animation errors don't help. No, uh, yeah. But still, it's all right. Yeah, I, where where it falls short for me is the action that it's just a lot of colliding, which I think is kind of stupid. You're but. right. Yeah, there's not a lot of cool, cool battles. But I mean, that'll that'll come in the future of animation to some extent where they figure out how to do cool fight scenes and stuff. Um, you know, a weird thing what? is that the Stunticons and aerial bots are better known or at least more combat ready in their vehicle forms. That's unusual for a Transformer. Yeah, that's true. Yes. Um, they're in vehicle form. They're largely just big slabs that move forward in some way. Right. I mean, collisions are pretty much the best you can hope for there. And maybe they have some guns <laughs> stuck to them. But you're right. As right. as uh, ambulatory beings, maybe that's why the Dinobots are so cool, because they have they can swing their tails and stab with horns and breathe fire and yeah. stuff. It's weird when they're in robot form, for that matter. Um, Kinda. Yeah, I was looking at the designs for these. When I looked at the toys, Motormaster's got a terrible toy. <laughs> but uh, oh boy, is he clunky! But his robot form, though, in the cartoon, he really looks to me like he should transform into a boombox. <laughs> 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 he should be in that line of uh, yeah. cassette wielders. The aerial bots have a sort of color homogeny to them they not really as much in do. jet form they really not as do. much in jet form but yeah yeah they're like they're all Which, white and one is black i like it less than the variety that you get with the stunticons yeah it's it's very much like these were designed just to have four meaningless cheap toys that are like 4.99 and then the one big one that's like 19.99 in Actually, you're, you're right on that because the toys for the Aerobots, uh, Silverbolt's huge. And then they really strike me as GoBots. Oh, yeah. Because they're so small and their transformations are so simple. Now, I'll say for Menasaur, I don't really love that he just has basically two car bodies on his arms. But Well, yeah. I mean, that's that's all of the combiners after the constructicons had the same we talked about this last week they have the yeah, same yeah, yeah. idea and it's it really comes down to how different the non-robot forms of the transformers look like right. the terror cons that i mentioned you know there's like mm. one is some kind of gorilla thing one is a a two-headed tiger one is a pteranodon essentially the main big one mm. is a two-headed dragon um Right. But then their counterparts were the rescue bots, which is like a police car, an ambulance, a fire truck. Like, mm, I think one's a helicopter. So, right. yeah, I mean, it's I think what had happened is I, I might be wrong about this, but I think the way it went was the first wave of Transformers was essentially the Japanese company, which I believe is called Takara, just buying up all the 
transforming toys that already existed in Japan and reskinning them as Transformers. And when they ran out of those and they had to make new Transformers, it was Takara slash Hasbro making new ones from whole cloth, which is why they have a more homogenous design. They don't have like diecast metal anymore. Um, right. So it's really, you know, once you get past the first part of Transformers, it's OK, we need more of these. Make some up. Right. And they start to become more outlandish, like shark decons, which are like. I like the shark decons. I do, too. I had one. I loved the shark decons. <laughs> Boy, it's an expensive army build, though, if you want to buy a lot of those. Well, at the time, I didn't no. know that they were like drones. I thought, oh, cool. It's oh. one that's a shark. And then I saw the movie. It's like, oh, they're like mindless foot soldiers. Ah, my favorite part of that movie, though, is watching Hot Rod and Cup bust them up. Yeah. You mentioned the uh, <laughs> the Terracons. I'm looking at Hunger, <laughs> the two-headed dragon thing. Yeah. Really cool. Uh, I like that's guy. the one that I had. His... The yeah. dragon heads are the legs, and they're like they have lots of points yeah. of articulation on them. They can move all over the yeah. place. Uh, his robot form's cool too, actually. He's he was really good. Yeah. I liked I liked that Hunger was his name. I really liked yeah, Hunger. Hunger. Yeah, <laughs> I really liked him. I was I was happy to have that toy. Not the least because it completed the set, but it was also just he was just cool on his own. Eh, it's more of a He-Man name than it is a Transformers name. But very much. Yeah, you're right. Speaking of names, you know how I've mentioned that. Transformers keeps reusing names even for totally disparate characters in order to keep the trademark alive for toys and the like. Yeah. Silverbolt is the Beast Wars Transformer that I actually kind of like. Mm. There, there he's a triple changer um, who changes into a wolf and an eagle. Okay. But. Like, yeah, pretty He's He's really cool. I like him there. Like, but I actually like, I like, they... They did some work in making these aerial bots part of it. Even though they had to introduce a toy, they're really involved in in the storylines of this era. Like, uh, there's also an episode where they time travel back to the creation of Optimus Prime. So they're involved in quite a lot of hmm. th this period where they really work on the Transformers lore, you know, with like yeah. uh, Vector Sigma and all this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. Well, that's neat. Seeing some Transformers lore, even if what they're trying to do in this particular episode more than the first one, it was really clearly, hey, buy this toy. Sure. Uh, but speaking of buying expensive things, uh, how are things going in nameless town, New Jersey? Oh, they, 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 they want to sell that wharf. OK, uh, I'm looking at Bob's Burgers and uh, this Second part is called World Wharf Two: The Warfening, directed by Jennifer Coyle in 2014. So I'll give you a rundown about last week on Animation Celery. We watched the first part of the Bob's Burgers season four climax, and if you're just coming in now, in short, Bob's Burgers is a cartoon about a family headed by Bob Belcher, the owner and chef of a burger restaurant. He was persuaded by Felix Fishoder to convince his brother Calvin to sell Wonder Wharf. It's a seaside amusement park. Uh, that way, everyone could get rich from swanky developments upscaling their neighborhood. However, Bob's weird children convinced him that the heart of the town was Wonder Wharf. And so Bob, in turn, convinced Calvin not to sell. Later, when Bob and Calvin Fishoder were discussing these events, Felix got the drop on them at Pistol Point, because if they die, the deal goes through. And now the conclusion. All right. So Felix 
ties Bob and Calvin to a post under the pier. Rather than just shoot the pair, he insidiously intends that they drown when the tide comes in. Now, I got to say, for a cartoon that I've said doesn't offer me anything visually, the underside of the pier looks pretty nice. Yeah, it's neat. It's like, and they, and it plays into it where he's like, he's showing them like, you see that line? And it's like where all the barnacles stop. It's like, that's where high tide's right. going to be, just above your head. Yeah. Um, nice design. Better than that darn Vox Machina. <laughs> so Linda, Bob's wife, laments to the kids that they won't be rich thanks to last minute sentimentality. They return to the restaurant. Uh, and since Bob isn't there, Linda assumes that he must be out partying with Calvin. Of course, the two are facing death under the pier. At Bob's direction, Calvin pulls his phone out of his pocket. And though they manage to call Linda, their cries for help aren't loud enough to be understood. Uh, Louise, that's the uh, really bratty kid, assumes that all of these phone calls are butt dials. After a few fruitless calls, Linda puts them on silent. And they try calling 911 emergency, but that does no good either because they're still inaudible. Uh, next, they try to text Linda, but again, it's difficult because Bob is typing at hip height and unable to see the keys. Also, he has a f he also has a flip phone, so he's got to do that old right. style texting where you have to push a number key like three to four times to get <laughs> yes. the right no uh, letter. Oh, that darn four letter. Uh, what was it? The, the nine or the no? Anyway, um, so yeah, he's he's texting her, and the result is a message that <laughs> reads, "Help! I'm tired, yo." Um, Tina, that's the monotone elder daughter, suggests that the real message might have been auto-corrected. Anyway, while retrieving the phone with his foot, Bob accidentally takes a picture of Mr. Fishoder's butt, which Tina can fully recognize. Now, <laughs> there's, um, Teddy, he's a regular customer at the restaurant, first says about the photo, this looks like a white blob to me. And Louise replies, look who's talking. I actually chuckled. <laughs> so this episode of Bob's Burgers will not be a laughter shutout. Um, so Louise uses the restaurant specials chalkboard to list potential words that could have been autocorrected in the text message. And after others make bad suggestions, she realizes that her father meant to say he was tied up. And I don't know in real life if there are resources for uh, reverse engineering autocorrection. Hmm. But even if they just did it by experience or intuition, this detective work feels very plausible to me. Yeah, it, it, it does. It does. Um, I mean, yeah. the implausible part is that a phone as old as Bob's wouldn't have autocorrect, but still. Or would have it? No, yeah. it wouldn't. Like, no, he's got a dumb. It does, though. Well, that's the problem. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, I, I, oh, wait, but he, I think, no. I think they're assuming autocorrect when it's actually just badly typed. It's a, it's a small huh. thing, but whatever. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So, uh, they drop the phone in the water. Uh, you see the tide has come up to their knees at this point. And Bob managed, manages still to send an awkward text that reads fix got under seven, seven shrimp emoji Pierre. Teddy does his best with the info. And the group goes to a seafood restaurant called Pierre's. After interrogating and choking the Mater D, they give up on this lead. And the Mater D gave Gene, that's the loud son, a bunch of shrimp despite being assaulted. 
And Tina said, and he said, come back any time. What a class act. Yeah. And I chuckled a second time in this episode. That's the power of Paul F. Tompkins. Even if he just has a couple yeah. of lines, he's that funny. Yeah. Um, so while the water gets ever higher, Bob opens a lamentful song and his family contributes verses while they search for him. And Felix is part of the song is the crook becoming overwhelmed by conscience. When Linda recognizes the sounds of the carnival from Wonder Wharf from the earlier phone calls, she further connects that Pierre was autocorrected from Pierre. And Felix goes to rescue his victims by way of a swan pedal boat. Each of Bob's family chases in their own pedal boats. Now, Fanny, I hadn't talked about her. She's uh, Felix's trophy girlfriend. She arrives last. And though Felix has given up on murder, she grabs the gun in order that she have all the things she wants. A shot she takes into the air damages one of the support pillars. Bob delays getting shot by asking for the diva to sing one of her awful songs as his last request. Hmm. This, this gives Linda enough time to pedal her boat into the damaged pillar, which causes Fanny and Felix's boat to capsize. Linda also unties the ropes underwater. The group narrowly escapes getting crushed by the Wonder Wharf carousel, falling through the damaged pier. And in the end, Fanny is carted off by the police, but Calvin carelessly clears his brother of wrongdoing. The reunited family walks off together as happy as they ever were. There's an end credits little musical bit. Um, Tina throughout this episode from, from the first part uh, has had a bike lock connected to her neck because uh, Louise attached her to her favorite carousel horse as a form of protest. Uh, so it's kind of cute that she's got this lock on her neck whole, the whole time. And then the end credits. Oh, there, there's been talk about how she has to poop the key out in the end credit. She shows up with the bike lock in hand and her key in the other. Yeah, she like she's making burgers like she always does. And then she realizes something and runs off. And a little while later, she comes back and taps her dad on the hip and shows him, hey, I've got the key. <laughs> right, right. I didn't chuckle then, but I thought I gave it a uh-huh. OK. Um, now, the coworker that I mentioned earlier who recommended Vox Machina. I told him that I was reviewing Bob's Burgers and he asked if it was a season one episode because he worked on that in the first year. I imagine he probably did some some manner of animation on it. Hmm. Um, he's one of multiple artists that I've met at my job who voluntarily gave up their art careers to work at this nonsense that I do. Huh. It's kind of it's kind of disheartens me <laughs> whenever I meet one of these people. Isn't that better working on Bob's? But then I thought, nah, maybe not. Maybe it's not better working on Bob's Burgers. There's <laughs> the song that I mentioned earlier is "Oh, Bad Things Are Bad," <laughs> which, from my perspective, is both ironic and appropriate. Oh my gosh! Yeah, kind of amazing. <laughs> wow. Singing, do I hate this? Not really. Like, I think the worst thing we've talked about on the show, in my opinion, is Eight Crazy Nights. <laughs> That's pretty bad. And I don't think this is this bad, but then I weigh like, oh my God, there've been so many seasons of this. So, yeah. so many John animators making this damn cartoon. So I don't know, but on a gut level, I don't hate this like that. Yeah. I think that it has, there are things about this that I do, like it's the little things about Bob's Burgers that I like, like in the first episode when, when Felix shows up and Bob's like, 
is that a gun? And Felix is like, just cheerfully like, yep, it's where I keep my bullets. Like, okay. That's funny. Um, sure. I like that the first the first episode song is nice things are nice. And then the second oh. one is bad things are bad. Um, oh, it's a bookend. Yeah, yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah. Actually, it's, it's, um, I guess it was created enough of an impression that in a later season about head lice, the title of that episode is Lice Things Are Lice. Um, oh, okay. I like, you know, I complain about Gene uh, screaming about poop and farts all the time. Sure. But I actually like Felix, who is played by Zach Galifianakis. And mm-hmm. I like that he'll just scream outbursts when he gets frustrated. Just just for a second. It's not like a big tantrum, but like there'll be like when in the when he first shows up and Linda is like, hey, Mr. Fish over number two. And he's like, I, you can call me Felix. And like, I'm going to call you little fish. And she starts singing like your little fish, Calvin. Right. And and he just screams like, shut up. I don't like the grinning nicknames. Like, I think that's funny. I don't know why. You know, <laughs> I was complaining about how everyone has the same cadence and mannerism in this show where I thought like, I, I, it wouldn't surprise me if, if only a few people did all the voices, but no, each one's got their own voice. <laughs> um, I felt like I really have to listen to hear Ga- Zach Galifianakis, but I guess not when he's screaming like that. Yeah. I like that. Something that makes me laugh is that um, Kevin Klein plays a character named Calvin. Yes. I find that amusing. Um. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, I never realized. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's got a distinctive voice. Except when I hear him, I hear Tulio from the Road to El Dorado. <laughs> I've met your sister. That's a compliment. <laughs> but, I yeah, like yeah. his eccentricity. Like, is sure when he doesn't. You know, he doesn't want to take Felix to jail, and he's like, "Just look at him. He'd hate it there." And his. His version uh, yeah. of punishment is like, you know the rules. I get one free punch. Sure. Or or later in the first one, when they're they're taking their landlord to lunch, apparently, but Bob forgot his wallet. And he's like, uh, you could cover and I can get you back. And uh, Calvin's like, of course, why wouldn't I pay for my own fish uh, kidnapping lunch? Like, he's just kind of like our friend Glenn. He's so <laughs> ch- <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's so cheerful and eccentric he is so eccentric like there's an episode later where it's a halloween episode and bob keeps putting uh jack-o'-lanterns he keeps making these cool jack-o'-lanterns and putting them outside the restaurant but then he'll look back a second later and the jack-o'-lantern's gone and he's going tr- crazy trying to figure out what's happened to these jack-o'-lanterns because every time he turns his back a jack-o'-lantern disappears okay and it turns out that it's just Mr. Fish Odor driving around. He drives around a golf cart as his primary mode mm. of transportation. And it's just him driving around, grabbing the jack-o'-lanterns. And his reason is, I thought you were giving me free pumpkins. Uh, okay. like he's, just, he's just so weird and unflappable in fun ways. Like, he's just always has this good, crazy attitude. He can be evil sometimes. I usually like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so we can I, I can definitely hear that you have an affection for the show that I don't think I'll ever have. Well, it's um, waned in recent years, though. Like, I haven't even watched the yeah. more recent seasons because, like, the pandemic era. I think this is the point. I think it's the point that I didn't notice with The Simpsons where, you know, you're just watching it. And one day you're like, hey, wait a minute. This show started to suck. 
And then you have to go back and like, when did it start to suck? Bob's Burgers, I think I noticed when it started to suck. I discovered a weird Bob's Burgers alternative. Yeah. You, you know, the comedian Tom Segura? Uh, I vaguely recognize the name. Oh, you, well, basically most of his comedy he's a storyteller and he'll act out situations he has with weird people where he's like the normal guy. Okay. His stand-up comedy is like the good version of a Bob's Burgers episode. <laughs> okay. It's just him talking to lunatics and whatever, but uh, check that out and you can get back to me. Tell me if it really does seem like Bob's Burgers. Yeah. I will say one thing. There was one of the things about Bob's Burgers that I kind of realized at some point. Yeah. Bob would be a really successful restaurateur if it weren't for his family. Oh, his family's awful. It's the worst. Like, they're, they have funny moments. Like, Louise gets tiresome. Yeah. You know, when you first see the show, like, when it first started in season one, you're like, oh, Louise is a really amusing character. But her act wears thin real fast. Jean's mm-hmm. act wore thin immediately. Uh, t- I think the, the moment that I think of with Jean... Is I think I might have mm-hmm. mentioned this before. There's an episode where he's he's with Linda at some kind of a meeting, and he comes in and he asks where the bathroom is because he says he has to do something that rhymes with soup and may have the same consistency. I'm like uh-huh. Gene, just go straight to hell, which for you <laughs> I'm sure is a place where you never have to poop. That like that was the moment where I was like it all like everything he had ever done flooded back to me. And I'm like, wait a minute. Gene's the worst character in the world ever. Oh, that's good. (sighs) I'm glad we're I'm glad you've come down now. (laughs) We've both ended in the uh, in the place that rhymes with (laughs) rhymes with soup and has the same consistency. Yeah. Um, So I guess we'll move on to next week then. Yeah, let's elevate. Uh, yeah, so, uh, it's shorts time again, you know, summer. Pat. I don't know how we have gone a year and a half into this podcast without ever watching Felix the Cat. Huh. Um, so I got one for you from 1930. It has an awkward title. It's called Woo's Whoopie. I guess, (laughs) I guess the idea is like Felix the Cat Woo's Whoopie, except that the title screen says Felix the Cat in Woo's Whoopi. So, I don't know. So, watch that. Um, And then, because you can never get enough of it, the NFB. Why not? It doesn't have to be Canada Day to watch NFB shorts. I want you to watch Spinolio. Okay, neat. Hmm. Well, I also started old with you. Um... I would like you, Matsy, to watch from Fleischer Studios, All's Fair at the Fair. Oh, that name sounds so familiar. I guess I'll find out. And I picked something far more modern, a short called Widdershins. You know what? I saw that in my YouTube recommendations on the side. Okay. I was watching some video that popped up on the side and I was like, isn't that the thing that Paul Blart always says? I should watch this to see where that comes from. But then I didn't. So I made a good choice. I get to find out after all. Yeah. Wittershins. Me and uh, the algorithms are in cahoots. Yeah, I guess so. Well, if you're in cahoots with us, give us some suggestions on what to watch and uh, tell all your friends about this show. Uh, 
the best way to do that is on social media, such as Facebook, if you still use that. I don't know. Some people do. Uh, or Twitter. Uh, I'm at AC Matsy. Right. Uh, tell us what to watch. Give us some suggestions, even for what kind of theme we should have. Yeah. Uh, you can reach me at Drab Swatch. Now, all right, Matsy, you've made it to final celery. Final are you celery. ready for... Th- are you ready for the question for the grand prize, a $10 Dollarama gift card? Oh, man, I could buy like 20 packs of Popeye's candy cigarettes for that. Yeah. OK, I'm ready. The clue is this comes at the end of an animation celery episode. Um, usually it's a quote from a cartoon. A, a pun? Is it a pun? Oh, not good enough. Oh, sorry, I'm sorry, Matsy. Uh, you will go home with some lovely parting gifts, including a year's supply of Geppel's goo. It's not just good, it's good. The answer was the Celery Stalker's slogan. Oh, bad things are bad. Bad things are bad.